Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. Every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hi, I'm Priya Dixit-Vyas, Vice President in the London office and a member of the Culture Shaping Practice. This is the second podcast in our series on Leaders on Culture. And for today's episode, Culture Through the Regulator's Lens, I'm talking to Natalie Sini, former CEO of the UK Financial Ombudsman. For four years, from the start of 2010, Natalie was CEO of the UK Financial Ombudsman Service, the world's largest alternative dispute resolution body. One of her most significant achievements was winning a high-profile case on bank mis-selling of PPI, resulting in a record £40 billion provisioned by UK banks for consumer compensation. For much of her career, Natalie has led digital transformation and modernising of major institutions. She currently chairs Innovate Finance, the UK fintech membership body. Natalie, welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Natalie, to what extent do you think that culture played a part in the 2008 financial crisis, particularly around mis-selling? It's a very good question. And and perhaps it's worth stepping back and saying, what do we mean by culture? Because often this is very generalised. So I like a definition of culture as the way things are done around here. And if you look back to banks around 2008, um, the way things were done at many banks and financial institutions was to put profit above all else, something that's now been pretty well established. So to that extent, culture did have a major impact, particularly around mis-selling. But it is a lot more complicated than that. So perhaps if we can dive in and look at what actually happened at different levels of financial institutions, I think it gives a better lens into what was happening around culture. Now, in my four years at the Ombudsman Service, I worked very closely with chief execs of all the banks. And I don't believe that many banks or their leaders set out to mis-sell products systematically to consumers. In my time at the Ombudsman, I met very few leaders I thought were unethical, untrustworthy or bad. And most bank leaders I met were people who really did have a genuine passion for banking as a force for good. But we know huge mis-selling and wrongdoing happened unknowingly. So something clearly went wrong. And I do think culture gives us a good lens. Now, a lot of the mis-selling obviously happened on the front line. And if you look at what actually happened on the front line, I think that gives you a good insight into what went wrong. Many branch staff, in the case of PPI or other mis-selling, told customers they needed this product, which they didn't, when taking out a loan or business advisors telling chains of restaurants they needed an interest rate swap when they didn't. Now, I've talked to a huge number of frontline financial services staff. Many felt hugely uncomfortable about what was happening. But the reality was, this was the way things were done around here. They had targets, which meant that actually they didn't get a decent salary unless they sold products, despite the fact they knew customers didn't need them. So it made a huge component of the take-home pay. If you were uncomfortable, you were pushing against the tide and it was actually easier to leave and do something else, as many staff did. There were competitions in branches about selling the most PPI. That was what was valued. That was what was rewarded. So if a definition of culture is the way things are done around here, mis-selling was in the culture. But if you step right to the other end of the spectrum in the boardroom, we have to remember that boards were being challenged by the market to achieve higher and higher return on investment, particularly in retail banking. And if you'd go back a couple of decades, retail banking got single-digit returns and suddenly they were expected to significantly 
overperform. And I think many boards just didn't look closely enough at where those profits were coming from. They didn't ask enough questions about staggeringly high penetration rates of product sales like PPI or unbelievably high profitability. And there were too many steps removed from the customer. And it's quite easy to feel abstract when you're looking at a spreadsheet, far higher, harder, when you're talking to a pensioner who's lost their entire life savings. And I think boards, again, the culture was they didn't understand too much what was actually happening on the front line with incentives focused on today, not tomorrow, and with markets demanding that people achieved higher and higher profitability. And I think structurally in boardrooms, there was a lack of personal accountability. And if you pull this back to culture, to quote Warren Buffett, the five most dangerous words in business can be everybody else is doing it. And I think that was the cultural norm of banking boardrooms around the financial crisis. And I think the final lens, if you look at what happened, is middle management. It was the middle management level who took what the boardroom expected and turned it into targets and incentives and how to manage the front line. And we all know middle management do what they think is going to be valued for their promotion or what they're rewarded on. It was that level that wrote scripts that assumptively sold people products in contact centres or got boxes ticked by default on forms. And they did that because they believed that was what was wanted and that was what was going to be rewarded. So thinking about that, how do you think that had an impact on your role as the ombudsman, particularly in resolving consumer disputes? When I started the Financial Ombudsman in 2010, we employed just over a thousand staff. When I left four years later, we employed four and a half thousand. And the vast majority of our work was about resolving consumer disputes about missold products. So predominantly PPI, but also interest rate swaps to small businesses, packaged bank accounts, mis-selling and, and a range of other things. Now, we talk about this trivially now. I mean, I hear jokes on just about every comedy show about PPI calls. And we've all probably all met people who got a windfall and bought a car um, as a result of products they didn't know they bought. But actually, we saw some very, very serious cases of hardship and worse. So on a scarily regular basis, our staff picked up the phone to talk to a consumer who'd lodged a complaint and had a tearful call with a spouse because the complainant had committed suicide in part because of their debt levels. We talked to small businesses who had gone under and lost their entire life savings because they'd been sold an interest rate swap product that was totally unsuitable. We talked to pensioners in their 80s who had lost everything because they were sold in a retail branch something that was highly derivative um, as a product and never should have gone anywhere near retail customers. So we saw some pretty horrible cases. And of course, not everything was missold. But over the period where I was chief ombudsman, we had some financial institutions where over 80% of all the cases we saw relating to them, we found against the bank in favour of the consumer because they had missold. And we only saw the disputes where consumers were brave enough to actually bring a complaint. So that would explain what happened with our workload. But the other aspect was actually a change in our role. So although the Ombudsman's primary and statutory role is to resolve disputes, I felt that it was absolutely critical we played a role in stopping these things happening and helping people learn. So we added a second strand to our mission around helping lessons be learned. And with with my chairman, we set up regular meetings with the chief execs and the boards of all the banks to talk about their performance, but also showcase these cases, because it was very easy to look at spreadsheets. But when you hear about some of these cases, most people were pretty shocked. And some banking chief execs took that a range further. So I ended up speaking to a whole leadership teams of banks, talking about real cases with real videos of consumers talking about what had happened to them. And I hope that paid a part in changing the culture. 
and I, I suppose a reflection there on culture, I don't believe that most people want to do bad things. And in my work over many years with, with banks, I really haven't met many people at any level I think are, are bad. But it did take, in some cases, bringing home the real harm that had been done to real people to help change attitudes. It certainly was a landmark uh, court case ruling, and I think it has huge impact on the financial services sector, not just in the UK, I would say, globally and for the better for consumers. So thank you. Just moving moving on, say about ten, we are about 10 years from the 2008 crisis. What would you say have been the most notable changes? And what do you think still needs to happen? When I started at the Ombudsman Service in early 2010, there really wasn't any recognition um, that we had an issue. I was having conversations with senior bankers who were telling me it was all an economic issue in, in 2008 and there was no problem here and we needed to move on. And we had some fa famous ra radio broadcasts um, with bankers saying that um, we just needed to move on and, and put this behind us and rehabilitate banking. But over my four years um, at the Ombudsman Service and beyond, I saw a, a massive shift where culture was recognised to have been a problem um, and a lot has changed. And the fact we recognise the extent of consumer detriment over that period uh, and the fact financial regulation has shifted dramatically from being all around uh, economic issues and rules to putting conduct at its heart is a, is a reflection of how far we've moved. But changing cultures is really hard and I don't think any bank will tell you that they've cracked it. Putting statements on the walls is really easy. We all know it changes absolutely nothing if it's done on its own. Cultures change when leaders behave differently. It changes when people at every level are rewarded on different things and when the actions follow those words on the wall. And I've seen a lot of banks grapple with how to change their cultures. Most will tell you it's work in progress, but that they have made progress. And some of the things that I've seen, so over the past five years, all banks have completely overhauled their reward structures. And this is critical. Staff on the front line, understandably, do what they're paid to do. And if they're paid to sell products, they're going to sell products regardless of whether customers need them. And the shift now of incentives from sales volumes to customer satisfaction and quality is an absolute critical step. We've also seen the introduction of far more personal accountability, particularly at the top and boardrooms. So with the new senior managers regime, um, with boards taking far more personal accountability and with deferred remuneration as standard, that has led to a big shift in boardrooms to people thinking about not just profits today, but reputation and sustainability. And we've seen a huge shift in regulation. So the FCA have now put culture and conduct at the heart of the way they regulate and the way they supervise. We've got a new banking standards board independently assessing how well individual banks demonstrate key values like honesty and openness to help boards calibrate themselves. I've seen customer feedback go from tiny reports, which never even made the exec team, to being standard in boardrooms. And this focus on conduct and not just rules um, really, I think, has helped shift because conduct is about behaviour and it leads to a very different way of assessing frontline performance. But I do think we've got a long way to go. Cultures don't change overnight. Banks are mammoth institutions and changing cultures is like turning a tanker. And it shouldn't surprise us that the Banking Standards Board in 2016 found that there was a mismatch between the values espoused and the way some employees see business being done. And we can't inevitably get away from the fact that banks are commercial businesses. They're always going to have profit targets. They're always going to have markets demanding more. And doing business profitably, but in an ethical way, is going to be a constant challenge and tension. You mentioned um, about the difference in, in the mismatch 
in what we what leaders said and in what leaders did and that being very important in driving the right culture so what do you think would be the role a leadership team plays in driving cultural change and making it sustainable it's widely said that culture trumps strategy people respond to cultural norms and what's expected around here above pretty much anything else you can do to lead an organization but something i've observed in 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 many industries not just financial services is while leadership teams pretty much all define their strategy not many define the culture they want or measure perhaps where the culture is now and do that gap analysis of how to get there but culture is set by the top and that means culture has to be right at the top of leadership agendas in the same way that strategy is and leaders set the tone by the way they behave by what they value what they reward and the hard and soft messages they set now that's really easy to say but actually I think there's some key decision points which often tell an organization who are watching leaders vividly what really matters around here and perhaps let me touch on two I think one of the best tests of culture and, and a key one for leaders is how you deal with that brilliant performer who achieves fantastic results but demonstrates unacceptable values and I don't think any of us in business have ever not we, we've all had this do we ignore it do we promote it or do we tackle it and fire them if we don't tackle it what we're actually saying to the rest of the organization is that behavior is okay and too often in organizations i've worked with and i've seen it in in many banks these people are promoted and the message that sends is that actually as long as you get the results poor behavior is okay and results and profit matter more now this isn't a new concept i mean back when jack welsh took over ge he talked quite famously about the first person he'd fire in in one of his subsidiaries was the brilliant performer who got the best results with the wrong values but i know from personal experience and i've had these cases it's hard and i think that's a key one for leadership teams it's not about writing values on a wall it's actually those decisions that tell the organization what you really value and another one i reflect on is how much we get below the surface and look at whistleblowing now we've we're in an environment at the moment where the hollywood parliament business where we're hearing about abuses that happened over many decades and one of the questions we're all asking is who knew why wasn't it tackled now this happened in financial services um i spoke to many staff many of whom actually later came to work for the ombudsman who would say we did things we were very uncomfortable with but if we spoke out we knew we could lose our job and many people who did speak out not only lost their job they became unemployable and that told people that whistleblowing was incredibly dangerous and i think any walk of life that's now what we're seeing so for those of us in governance roles we need to make it so safe to speak out and we need to take whistleblowing very seriously but whistleblowing on its own will not be enough and i think leadership teams need to make it their responsibility to get below the surface talk to staff find out what's really going on make it very safe to say you know what it's not right around here and to be brave enough to dig in when things just don't feel right it is the shadow of the leader after all what we permit we promote right and thank you thank you for that insight now moving a little bit i just wanted to kind of move to what you're doing now right um so from your perspective as chair of innovate finance how will fintech impact upon the culture in financial services it's a really good question fintech as a sector is changing and growing really quickly we're seeing staggering levels of investment into the sector and it's gone from a few years ago being a quirk to something now high up the agenda of all financial services institutions and we've got fintech such as nutmeg or starling bank becoming recognized consumer brands now there are a few key drivers of this fintech revolution which i think give us a lens into the debate around culture an obvious one 
is, is technology. But the other is customer. And it's perhaps that customer focus, which I think has the biggest impact on culture in financial services. So when I talk to fintechs, most start with a very clear vision of how they can rethink a process from a customer back perspective to add value. And customers are very critically for fintechs at the heart of design. Now, I'm sure most banks would love to say the same, but the reality is banks offer a plethora of services and they're not looking at the point solutions that many fintechs are. But as well as redesigning processes from a customer perspective, what we're also seeing fintechs do is develop and deliver services which are better at meeting existing customer needs. So if I give an example, one of the the paradoxes in financial services is the poorer you are and the worse credit rating you have, the more you pay for services. We're seeing companies like Neighbour and Salary Finance finding ways via employers to offer loans to those with poor credit ratings. Um, A real rethinking of financial services from a customer-backed perspective. And on services like foreign exchange, uh, where customers often paid over the odds because it was part of what you did with your bank, we've got ways now that we all use of getting foreign currency, which are very easy to use via apps, but also are cheaper and better designed from a customer's perspective um, with a lot of transparency for customers. And I think this customer perspective is a bit of a challenge and a wake-up call for many financial institutions. And thinking back to what happened in 2010 and, and before, I do think that losing focus on the customer was one of the drivers of some of the poor behaviour. It's really hard to miss sell if customer is at the heart of how you're thinking. So that true customer focus being driven by fintech, I think can only be a very positive cultural development for financial services as a whole. So Natalie, what, what would be your key learnings on culture? Well, to, to play back on some of the themes of this conversation, I do believe that if you're looking to get performance from an organisation, culture trumps strategy every time. But like strategy, you really won't get there if you don't know where you're going. So I think it's critical for any leadership team, if they really want to change culture, to know what culture they want, work out where they are now and map a path to get there. If you don't know where you're heading, you haven't got a chance of getting there. And linked with that, changing culture really is hard. It's about behaviour. And as senior leaders, we're watched all the time. All our decisions are scrutinised for signs of what really matters around here. People look really closely at what we value, what we reward, who's promoted, What happens to that nasty individual? Are they fired or rewarded? And it's never a quick fix. So being really mindful of those difficult decision points and stepping back at them and saying, what would our values tell us to do? And not ducking those difficult decisions. And linked with that, I think one of the problems around the culture debate is it's seen as fluffy. It's seen as intangible. But it's anything but. A strong culture can deliver amazing results. That's not fluffy. It's a hard business issue. We've seen over the last two decades repeated studies showing that core values and culture directly correlate with business performance. And the logic's really obvious. A great working culture is going to lead to higher staff retention and lower turnover. A customer-focused culture is going to lead to fewer complaints, happier customers, higher recommendations. So for those reasons, culture needs to be a core business strategy, core to leadership team thinking, and at the same level as all of the other strategic choices that organizations have. Thank you. And Natalie, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. I think it was both commercial as well as what you thought as a, from an ombudsman's perspective and a customer perspective. So it really gave us a good stakeholder overview of um, what your views are on culture. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with us and it was a pleasure speaking to you. 
Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.